Last week we looked at part one on this little series on the Word of God. It was men die, but the Word of God lives. Men die, but the Word of God lives. Today I'd like for us to look at part two. Experience, experiences fade, but the Word of God remains. Experiences fade, but the Word of God remains. Today we're going to look at probably, I would guess, one of the greatest experiences that three apostles had in life. I don't believe there's any greater experience. We're going to look at this in detail as best we can as God gives us the time within this hour. So in saying that, please open your Bible with me as we continue our study through the epistle of 2 Peter. We're looking at 2 Peter, wonderful epistle, only three chapters, but it covers a lot. He's dealing with inside the church and false teachers. First, The first epistle, he dealt with troubles outside the church. Here now he goes within the church. And here we're looking at uh, chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1. And our, today our text will be verses 16 to 18. Verse 16 to 18. Three verses i like for us to look at, but it is loaded up. The focus, as I said, is in this particular section is on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Really, He is the message. Jesus is the message. The Apostle Peter knows this. As Brother Keith mentioned about the Word of God, Jeremiah understood this. God was the message. It's not about men. It's not about our opinions. It's about what God says. I'm here to hear, as, as you are, to hear from heaven. And the only way we can hear from heaven is in this book. It's so sad in our day today, there is so many Bibles that are published. And people are saying, I want to hear from God. I need a new revelation. There's no new revelations. This is the revelation. It is complete. The canon is closed. And what is so heartbreaking is, so many Bibles are in so many homes today that are broken and people without Jesus and all that of eternal life and everything that God desires for us lies within this book. Everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. We already saw that. I tell you, this, this today is a, is, is a powerful word, not because I'm preaching it. It has any, nothing to do with me. But it's everything has to do with what is said in this book. So I'm reading from the New King James Version. Hear the word of the living God. Verse 16. For we, notice now he changes, not I, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Verse 17, For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice, such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. May God Himself richly bless the reading of His holy word from the hearing of our ears to the understanding of our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can help us there. Please bow with me in prayer. Our Father and our God, Our prayer is once again simple. Once again, very childlike. And it comes right from the pages of Holy Writ. Lord, speak for your servant hears. We ask this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Experiences fade, 
but the Word of God remains. Movie previews are very powerful. Movie previews are powerful. Matter of fact, they tantalize you with the best action and out of sequences scenes to motivate us to squander a few dollars and maybe more and waste an evening to return to the movies once again. I'm a candidate of that. But movie previews are very powerful. They do give us a preview, don't they? And a very taste of what is to come. Now I use that as a simple illustration that such an event occurred in the life of Jesus Christ. Except this is just not a movie. This is reality. A preview of the glorious preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Think of this. Of His second coming, when He will come in power and glory. And we are waiting for Him to come. The only time in His flesh in the ministry of Jesus. Think of it. The only time at this moment on this holy mountain, on a mountaintop experience, by the way, the veil as it was, was pulled back so that His deity could be fully seen in His second coming of glory. It's called the transfiguration. A transfiguration. I've even seen many churches name this, and I'm thinking uh, they're everything but this. Sad to say, because Ichabod's written on many churches that the glory of God's departed. But here is the preview of the glory of God bursting forth from Jesus, as it were. The veil was pulled back. We can't imagine this. This is a preview, just a preview, by the way, of His glorious second coming. And this event is recorded in three of the four Gospels. That's how important it is. Three gospel writers, three witnesses, by the way, recorded this very critical event in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Peter writes about it in verses 16 to 18 here in our, in our text before us in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Again, from which to launch into this discussion of false teachers As I said last Lord's Day in chapter 2, the believer's response of the blessed hope of the second coming of Jesus. And we see this in the entire chapter 3, the conclusion. That is the blessed hope and the believer's response of this. And what lies between chapter uh, of this chapter 1, verse 12 to 21 as I said before, is a necessary bridge. So we're actually on a bridge right now. And we're about to get to the heart of the message, Lord willing, after next week, because next week we'll look at one more message on the Word of God. Um, actually, we will, we will cover verse 19 to 21. The world darkens, but the Word of God shines. But here in verse 12 to 15, as we saw last Lord's Day, we saw the essential, how essential it was that Peter reminded us of the important truths that we are to be reminded not to forget, by the way, over and over again. And that's how important the gospel is. We should preach it to ourselves every day. It is so important and it is so easy for us to forget. And God says this constantly. Don't forget. Remember. Remember. What is the consequences of forgetting? It's serious. Seduction. There is a seducing of Christianity today. The seduction of Christianity. There is also error. And by this, as we forget, as Christians, we can easily fall... Pray to apostasy. Satan is very cunning. He plays for keeps. 
That's why we see so many warnings in Scripture. Because the love of the heart of, as Brother Keith mentioned about the prophet Jeremiah or any prophet, Ezekiel and Isaiah, these great men of God, they would not consider themselves great, but we look at they were men of God moved by the Holy Spirit as God spoke through them, as they spoke the words of, of the living God as vehicles and instruments to speak, thus says the Lord, and to turn Israel back from apostasy, as which they went through, from judgment, from the error, and they forgot the Lord, right? And you know, God graciously would call out, but truth was pouring forth as well. God would not spare the truth. He, truth would come forth, but it would came in great lamentation. You know this, as Brother Keith mentioned, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. But Jesus was far greater. And this is who we focus on. Jesus had the zeal and the fire of Elijah far more. He had the lamentation far deeper than Jeremiah could ever imagine. But here in our text in verse 16 to 21, as we'll be continuing uh, next week as well, Peter wants to affirm the truth of Scripture. This is where we must focus on. It's the truth. What is truth? Pilate said to Jesus. And the truth was staring him right in the face. Jesus Himself. God's truth. Now, that's the living truth, but we have the written truth. The written truth, because the written truth is, there's no other book like this book. There's inspiration, and that word inspiration, as we will look at later on, uh, Peter says in verse 20, know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The inspiration is God's breath. We, I, I really believe that if the church would rediscover the greatness and the majesty of God's Word, there will be a great, not only revival, there will be a new reformation. And that's what we need. Well, Peter proves that the Holy Scripture is true in two ways. One is that Peter himself, along with two other apostles, John and James, as we'll see, are eyewitnesses of the truth in verses 16 to 18. And two is that the Scriptures recorded by the apostles are God's actual, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient Word. And the only truth you and I could depend on. Matter of fact, the psalmist, and you can read this whole chapter in your devotional times, it's 176 verses. And notice it's the longest chapter. It's Mount Everest of the Psalms. 119, Psalm 119 is the mountain. It is the Mount Everest, and it's focused on God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 160. Listen to this. The entire, he says, the entirety of your word is truth. The entirety of it. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Powerful. Now, since the false teachers, by the way, and that's what Peter is dealing with here, are attacking his apostolic credentials. That's what they're doing. They're Peter's apostolic instructions here about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that's what they're really going after. They're trying to discredit Peter, and they do not believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again. That's what they taught. And how many false teachers believe that same thing today? You never ever hear a false teacher speaking about the second coming of Christ or the sufferings of Christ. No, they give them what they want to hear because people have itching ears. We'll see that in a minute. Peter uses his, his own and other apostolic authority here and personal eyewitnesses account to, to the second coming and glory of Christ revealed at the transfiguration, by the way, that which was proof that you and I can trust in the word of the living God given by the apostles. Peter's just reminded us as we looked at that we need to hear these same great truths over and over again. We do not need to forget them that we need to be jolted, sobered. We fall in a lull. How easy it is to be lulled to sleep. 
We need to hear, thus says the Lord, we need to hear God's Word. Paul says it in Romans chapter 10, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. No other way faith comes, by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we should not trust the ideas and opinions and distortions of false teachers or men, the traditions of men, but we can trust in the Word of the living God. I like what Paul says in Romans 3, 4, Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. And then he gives, just to back up what he just says, he says, As it is written, notice what he says, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. That's number one. Two, written by the apostles and the prophets, moved by the Holy Spirit. So now let me give you a question. Let me set a question before you before I go into our our outline this morning. How does a church, how do us as a church here, a local church or any church, and a Christian defend against the error of false teachers? That's a loaded question, isn't it? How does a church or a Christian defend against the error of false teachers? Now, in one sense... God's Word needs no defense. It's like a lion, as Spurgeon says, just let it out and it'll do its work. But we are to give a defense of the hope that lies within us. And that's what Peter talks about that. And that's what he's doing. Because of the false teacher is the false teachers and what they teach are like leaven within the church that's eating away and leading people away from the truth to the, to the false teachers and to what they teach. And we're going to look at this. Getting back to our question, the answer would be our best two weapons against error, and this is critical, against error of false teachers, number one is God's Word. God's Word. And then two, I would say... Godly character. There must be godly character as well. You take away that, you take away integrity. A person can know intellectually the Word of God, but if they lack godly character and integrity, it's not going to be effective. And let me say this, God's Word and the Holy Spirit together, there you have it. Because the Spirit of God will never do anything in our lives contrary to this Word. The Spirit of God, and then you hear a lot of people say, I was in the Spirit. Well, yeah, you might have been in the Spirit, but it might have not been the Holy Spirit. It might have been some kind of pizza yate before, uh, the night before, and, and then you're, you're just kind of overloaded in some kind of dream and experiences. And oh, how many times we've heard people get on those things, those tangents. I remember going to Bible college when I first went to Bible seminary, I met this Young man, I still remember it to this day. There's so many other as well. I could just go on and on, but I don't want to bore you on that. But I'll tell you one story. I, I went to visit this man. I, don't, I still don't, I don't remember his name. And there's a reason why, because I cut ties with him that night as we were talking about the Lord. And he just went on and on and on about a vision he had, this vision. Uh, and he was actually using Scripture from the Word of God, but he was taking it like he went into the Holy of Holies and almost like Isaiah, like Isaiah saw the Lord and high and lifted up and he was taking the Scriptures and he went before the Lord and he says, this really happened to me. And I thought, wow, you got a hotline with God, my friend. And he just went on and on into the Scriptures and, and how the Word of God talks about the depth of the, the holiness of God. And I thought, oh, so you're as holy as the prophets and the apostles. <laughs> no, no. Almost like he was in a trance, and from that time on, I, I cut ties. We have so much of this today. Um, it fascinates people. And we'll look at that more. But here Peter reminds his readers in verse 1 to verse 11 that the new nature they received at salvation through the Holy Scriptures. 
resulting in sanctification, godly character which offers believers true assurance in Jesus Christ. Now Peter is challenging them to wholly depend and trust in God's Word. That's what he's doing. You've got to depend and trust in the Word of God here. But Peter is a witness about what he's going to say. And he was one of the apostles along with James and John that were with him. And this is actually what verse 16 to 18 speaks of. And then in verse 19 to 21, again, the focus is on the Word of God. The Word of God. That's what we focus on. That's the truth. Now, notice the transfiguration of Jesus. It was a glorious preview here at the second, for the sec, of His second coming. There was a purpose for this mountaintop experience, and it was a good purpose. These three apostles that witnessed this, Peter, James, and John, were permitted. Could you imagine being permitted and privileged to see such a glimpse of Jesus bursting forth in His glory? And it's a glimpse of the kingdom of God, by the way where Jesus will rule in all of authority and righteousness and glory. You know, Peter focuses on the transfiguration here to show that he himself can personally vouch for the the trustworthiness of Christ's teaching. That's another reason. And the certainty, and by the way, there is a certainty of it, of Christ's second coming. So by giving this, he is a personal eyewitness of this account, of the majesty of Christ. The majesty of Christ. So Peter is affirming that Christ will return in glory. And and, and he's basically saying this is his purpose of his focus on the transfiguration. This is his purpose. Plus he encourages the people, his readers here, the persecuted Christians, the Christians that are being deceived by these false teachers, that an entrance will be supplied to them abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to every believer who has made His calling and election sure. How important that is. There are three points I'd like for us to look at and observe here. And we'll look into the transfiguration from this. Verse 16a, one is defending the truth of the preview of Christ's second coming. Defending the truth of this preview of the second coming of Christ. Second, in verse 16b, describing the eye to 17, describing the eyewitness account of the preview. And three, we will look at verse 18, defending the historical circumstances of the preview. Then we will look at some um, personal application that we can take home with us. Let's look into it. First of all, defending the truth of the preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Defending the truth of the preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is critical. Even in our day. We don't hear enough of this. Verse 16a, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We did not follow. Notice that. We did not follow. He's a leader. Cunningly devised fables. fables. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his focus. Now, the nature of truth is always objective. Historical fact, not subjective. It's not subjective truth that works for each person in, in our society in which so many people in society determines what truth is. You have this today. Basically, people think they are the source of truth. They don't need to be told what truth is. So you notice as you tell people this today, and it was the same in Peter's day, this is what truth is. And they say, it says who? Really? says God. Then they'll come back and says, no, there's no God. How many people? The fool has said there's no God. We had this today, folks. We've seen this. 
here recently as we were out witnessing. Everybody has their own view of truth. Their own opinion of truth. As I mentioned earlier, Paul already said, Paul the Apostle already said it, let man and let every man be liar and let God be true. Because God is true. So in our society determines what truth is, and in other words, it's collective. So Peter says, by the Holy Spirit, by the way, is the spirit of truth. For we did not follow cunningly, cleverly devised fables. Let's look into this. The word fables basically means tales, myths. The word fables, tales, muthos, muthos. It's the Greek word which gives us the English word myths. The word for fables was used to refer to mythical stories. Mythical stories of gods and miracles. Listen to the Apostle Paul. I'm not going to give you my definition and what fables basically says. and what We're going to hear what the Word of God says about fables. I want you to hear this. The Apostle Paul said a lot about it. 1 Timothy and the pastoral, and all of, all of them, and it's interesting, all of these verses come from the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 1.4. I'm going to begin there. He says, nor give heed to fables. Don't give heed to fables. And endless genealogies, why? Which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Again in 1 Timothy 4, 7. He says, but reject. First he says, don't give heed to it. Now he says, reject profane and old wives' fables because old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. So there has to be, notice, the positive, he first gives the negative, then the positive, you do not give heed to the fables, endless, endless genealogies, causes disputes. The positive, that's the negative, the positive is godly edification which is in faith. Then Again, the negative, reject it, profane old wives' tables, and then he says the positive, exercise yourself toward godliness. Then he says again in 2 Timothy, I love this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is basically his last will and testament, handing the baton to young Timothy in chapter 4. Look at verse 3 and 4, and we're here, folks. This is where the church is today. For the time will come, not maybe, will come, Paul knew this, when they will not endure, what? Sound doctrine. That we're there. They will not endure it. But according to their own desires, there it is, that's what false teachers play upon, their own desires, because they have itching ears. There's itching ears, I like what Ravenhill says, and I'm not commissioned to scratch them. Amen. They, they, the people that desire what they want to hear. They have itching ears. They will heap up. Listen to that word. Heap up. It's almost like accumulated. Heap up for themselves teachers. Verse 4. And they will... Notice how many times he says turn. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, to myths. We're there. So what's these fables? The false ideologies, their false ideologies, viewpoints, philosophies, traditions of men, various forms that oppose sound doctrine. That's the opposition. This is what they're opposing, folks. This is what Satan hates. And at times what he does, as you well know what false teachers do, they will choose and pick what they want to, twist it to their own desires, but not give a thus saith the Lord what God says. We were talking about this last week on the way home. And I spoke to uh, Brother Willem and Ben and, and Brother Keith about this. There's a great difference of what is called good hermeneutics, good study. That's another word for good study in Scriptures. But there is eisegesis and exegesis. 
What's the difference? Eisegesis basically says, this is a poor teacher, okay, that uses eisegesis. They take the meaning and twist it to what they want it to say. Out of context. This is what Satan loves. Satan's behind this. He takes a verse, and notice he does this as he tempted Christ. He took a verse of Scripture and twisted it. He took something out of it. He threw a twist to it. He's cunning. This is poor study of Scripture, but not only that, it's eisegesis basically says what they are saying out of it, not what God... And, and, and the good part of it is, it's exegesis that basically says, what is God saying? That's what we want to hear. And that's the difference. Titus 1, 13 and 14, listen to this. This testimony is true. Therefore, notice what he says, therefore rebuke them sharply. Folks, I'm telling you what, the apostles did not play around when it came to false teaching and false teachers. They did not play around. Because God doesn't play around with it. God will not be mocked. His truth will not be mocked. Therefore, rebuke them, what? Sharply. That they may be sound in the faith. I find that interesting. That's the use and that's the purpose for a sharp rebuke. That it may turn them to repentance. That they may come to know what sound truth is. What sound teaching is. That they may be sound in the faith. Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and the commandments of men who turn from the truth. There's that word again. They turn away from the truth. So the Apostle Peter is teaching here, back to what Peter is saying, they were not cleverly cunning... They did not follow cleverly cunning devised tales, fables, myths, myths of the story, tales, lies, error which is a person's own formulated views of truth. You have this everywhere. On the contrary of error, there is truth. I like what Jesus prayed in the, in, in, when he, in the upper room when He was praying for His disciples and the believers. In John 17, 17, He prays, sanctify them. Listen to this. He's so pointed sanctify, that means set apart. He's praying for the disciples, he's praying for the believers later in that chapter. Sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. The truth. And then he says this, your word is truth. Your word is truth. Scripture originates with God, amen? Because He is truth. He's absolute truth. There's no truth outside of God. There's no truth outside of this Bible, folks. So Peter reminds his readers he did not follow cleverly, notice cleverly devised error, these myths, these fables, these lies. But Peter knew the false teachers were doing everything they could to discredit him in his letter. So Peter gives an ample evidence to prove he wrote the truth of God as genuine, as a genuine inspired writer. Peter's writings here were not inventions, a myths, of stories like the false teachers. They were, they were the Holy Spirit of God breathing on him as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. A lot of people get mixed up on this. Yeah, but how many people you hear say, man wrote this book? Well, it may be in the language of men, but it's... The Spirit of God. People don't get that. There's, there's, there's a mingling here. They, they're writing it down, but as they're writing this down, what makes this book so different is it's not the words of men. It's God, the Holy Spirit, that was working through the move. They were moved by the Holy Spirit in the language of men. People get mixed up about that, but it's the Word of God. So Peter's writings were not inventions, stories like the false teachers. Isn't it interesting? The false teachers were doing this, lies and stuff, but they were basically throwing that on Peter. But they themselves were the liars in reality. It was almost playing like a psychological game there. 
He says, when we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the apostle, we said, he says we. And this is important, let me touch on this. Verse 16 to 18, he repeats this word four times. We, 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 we. There's a reason for that. Almost like he's in a court of law against these false teachers. He's almost like he's in a court against these false witnesses, these false teachers. And what he's doing, he's confirming the truth, folks. He's saying, it's not my words, but he did say, I was there. I saw this. Jesus says this. Let me give you a few verses on this. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 16, speaking of church discipline, he says, but if, if he will not hear, speaking about the he is talking about a person that is in sin, take with you one or two, you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Jesus quotes basically Deuteronomy 19, 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. You see, there's a reason for witnesses. So Peter's just not saying, I, 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 and even though he was an apostle and what he said had weight to it, but he brings in other witnesses. And there were other witnesses, right? James and John was with them. We, we made known to you. We, the Greek verb here, made known, is often used to communicate imparting a new revelation in that time. And it was a new revelation in that time. But not now. The canon's closed. That's why you could say, if somebody comes to you and says, I got a new revelation from God. God is telling me thus. No. You can reject that. And you can stand on the Word of God and say there's no new truth. It's just an old lie. Here's the truth. We stand on the Word of the living God. And that's what Peter is basically And There's witnesses. Peter uses the pronoun we, definitely, Peter, James, and John, which are three witnesses. But here, but here it might be referred to also the New Testament, just not those three apostles, by the way. It could refer as well in the interpretation here, all the apostles as well, since all of them, without exception, did receive supernatural divine revelation from Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? It could be all the apostles. But we will see here, the we is definitely Peter, James, and John referring to the transfiguration. So what was... So let me ask another question. Is What was the specific truth that Peter is defending here? Verse 15 gives the answer. The power, this is important, the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since there's only one definite article with this phrase, the meaning is literally saying the powerful coming or the coming and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we need to teach today. This is what preachers need to be preaching, that Jesus Christ is coming back in power and great glory. And this was a preview of this. Peter is teaching the truth about the powerful second coming of Jesus. And the false teachers did not like it. They denied it. This is the truth that needs to be trumpeted from every pulpit, from every housetop of this day. For the coming of the great day of God Almighty is near. But yet people are staggering and asleep and they would not even know it. But the Bible says every eye is going to see Him. When He comes in power and glory and Jesus speak with all the holy angels. Well, as I was... Correct me if I'm wrong. Here's the Greek word coming. Familiar New Testament word. Perosi. I say that right? Perosi. Perosi, okay means arrival. I knew I would stumble up on that one. Well, you know what it means. The coming. And by the way, this word coming occurs 24 times in the New Testament. Isn't that significant? 24 times in the New Testament. The word was frequently used technically for the arrival of a uh, visit of a king, a great king or emperor that would come in after a victory the resulting of His presence of a great person, and He's speaking about this in the Greek here, 
the coming, the arrival of the King is one day He's going to come and He's going to arrive. And He's going to come back in power and glory. The great, powerful coming. Jesus Christ. The term always refers to His return. So why does He say this? Why does He say this? That's a good question. Because, again, false teachers were denying the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus. You ever hear a false teacher talking about the second coming of Jesus? I don't don't hear it. If they do, they're twisting it up pretty badly. False teachers were teaching that Christ's second coming was all a myth and a fable and a story and a tale. He's not coming. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter. We're going there, Lord willing, very... uh, It may take a little while for us to get there unless Jesus comes back again, right? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust. Almost identical to what Paul said. Saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, they died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Do you hear this today? Basically, the false teachers say nothing has changed. Everything is continuing as it has always been. This is called uniformitarianism. It's a big word, but it's true. Uniformitarianism basically says that it asserts that the natural processes of past are the same processes, processes that work today. In other words, nothing's changed. Everything is going to continue as it is in the way things work in nature. Again, they believe nothing's changed, nothing will change, nothing's changed, which then categorically denies the divine intervention throughout the world of history. In other words, no six-day creation, no global flood, no second coming of Jesus. Basically says no judgment to come. That's the reason why. No judgment. Isn't that the truth? Nobody wants to know that there's a judge. That first of all, they want to deny the judge and they want to deny the judgment. This happened in the days of Noah, folks. They laughed about it. They scoffed about it. I'm telling you, people said, if nothing's changed, it's going to continue as it were. Now, that hasn't changed. Same lie. Same devil. That hasn't changed. But 1 Peter 1.13 says this, and we looked at this. This is why Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest, rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.13 But the rejoice to the extent that you're, you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may be also, you be glad with exceeding joy. So the truth that Jesus is coming again, false teacher says, no, He's not. The Word of God says, yes, He is. So Peter challenges them firsthand of the knowledge of the second coming of Christ. It leads me to my second point. That goes to verse 16b to verse 17. Now he's going to describe the eyewitness account of the preview. He's going to describe the eyewitness of the preview. Notice what he says in the text. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he's a king. Majestic. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to to him from the excellent glory... This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. They were eyewitnesses. And this is an eyewitness testimony. Important in establishing a case historically and legally. Now go with me to Matthew's Gospel. Let's look at this account. Chapter 17. This is a wonderful, wonderful text. And this is where Peter is referring to. I'm going to read this and go back and comment on some things. Uh, chapter 17 of Matthew, and this is exactly the... This is from the Gospel. This is the record. Levi, Matthew, by the way, writes this 
to the Jews. And uh, this is what the account says, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he, speaking of Jesus, was transfigured before them. Notice what the text says here. His face shone like the sun. Just like in Revelation. This is his glorified state, by the way. It's bursting out. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him! It was like a rebuke. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, I love this, they saw no one but Jesus only. Oh, how the church needs to catch a glimpse of this. How we need to catch a glimpse of this. I apply it to myself. Eyewitness account. Transfiguration here is the glimpse of the glory of the unveiled return of Jesus Christ. This is what they were looking at. He was, it's, it's a glimpse of His second coming and His glory and His power. Jesus' earthly ministry. Think of this. In this. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He taught the truth in parables. No one taught like Him. There was never a teacher like Him. He was the greatest. Also, a glimpse of the character of His earthly kingdom to come and all His miracles. But here, they caught a glimpse of His full glory and power that would be fully manifested at His return. Nothing like it. This is an experience, a mountaintop experience like nothing else. Peter, James, and John saw that personally and they were the witnesses. They were eyewitnesses of this. And actually the word eyewitnesses in Luke 1 basically means seeing with their own eyes. They saw this with their own eyes. While Peter's word basically means eyewitness only occurs here in the New Testament. Which means basically literally who watches or observes. Very similar they did see it with their own eyes, but here in the Greek, the eyewitness account means who watches and observes it. Peter's focus is on the amazing experience that James and John as well shared on that mountain. And Peter reminds his readers here they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Think of that. You know, many people's seen his power, seen the power of Jesus. Many recipients have experienced His grace, His love, the forgiveness of sin. That's glorious, isn't it? He healed many. Touched a leper, they were whole. Touched the blinded eyes, they saw. The deaf ears, the mute, they heard. We could go after one after a miracle after a miracle after a miracle, but here Peter, James, and John had seen something veiled from all other human eyes, folks. He saw, they saw His glory. Think of that. His, this majesty, that's what he's saying, the majesty or the magnificence, His splendor. They saw the glory of His holiness. Peter, James, and John, they personally saw that majesty, that holy splendor displayed in a way never experienced by anyone before. And I say not anyone, but only Moses. I was thinking of this. Only Moses and Isaiah came close to what these apostles experienced and even Elijah that was taken up in a chariot of fire. But nothing like this. They saw firsthand experience the preview of the glory and the power of the second coming of Christ. And Peter's point is this, the false teachers denied Peter's claims about Jesus and who he was and what he did. They taught that Christ wasn't returning. This is what the false teachers did. And unlike him, they were not eyewitnesses to Christ. This is perfect and holy life. 
in the ministry. In other words, Peter is bringing this out. And, and think of it, the, the false teachers were not there. They didn't uh, see what they saw. Peter and two other apostles, James and John, gloriously had the privilege to witness this. Glorious preview. So what does Peter focus on? Verse 17. Notice what his focus is. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, they witnessed the Lord Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Notice the second person of the Trinity was there. He received honor and glory from the first person of the Trinity to the Father. They personally saw Jesus' glory and honor for, even from the time of His baptism and the day of His ascension. At the baptism, the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, that means tabernacled among us. We beheld, notice what he says, John says this, We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And as Jesus was transfigured, I love this part, Moses and Elijah appears in glory and spake of His decease. We get that in Luke 9.31. The decease means His exodus. And that's, that's incredibly important because when you read about Moses, there's an exodus. In the book of Exodus, there's a bringing out, an exodus. And then Elijah, there's an exodus that he is taken up in the chariot of fire. Did you get that? Moses and Elijah understood the exodus. And here they were speaking of the greatest exodus of all. The resurrection. The greatest miracle. And here's the work of Jesus Christ and this is why He came. This is what He came to accomplish and this is exactly what He accomplished and this is what it's applied to die on Calvary's cross as a substitutionary Lamb of God for sinners like you and me. And then to die and to be buried and to rise again. That's what they were discussing. And this is what He accomplished. Praise God. The transfiguration speaks also of the affirmation of the truth of Scripture. And let me speak again on this. Moses represented the law on one side. Elijah the prophets. The law, the prophets. Both points to Jesus. Don't you love that? Every all of it points to Jesus. All fulfilled in Jesus. The law was fulfilled in Jesus. The prophets were fulfilled in Jesus. You take away Jesus, you take away all of it. That's why it's so important. There's no other way into heaven but by Jesus. No other way. Don't listen to the religions of the world. Only Jesus. You've got to know Him. You must be cleansed. You must be washed. You must be born again. You must be converted. You must repent. Whatever this book says. No exception. Beloved, we believe the Bible because Jesus believed the Bible. Not just because of the prophets. Yeah, the prophets, yes. The apostles, yes. But they spoke about Him. And Jesus is the one that says, He speaks of the Scriptures and He said, they testify of Me. Those who question the truth and the authority of Scriptures are not arguing just with Moses and Elijah folks or Peter. They're arguing with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the one that people are going to have to answer to. He's the one we're going to see. There's no escaping it. Peter, James, and John watched this. They witnessed this. And the Scripture says, don't you love this? His face shone like the sun. No wonder they fell down like dead. Listen to this. And his, his garments became as white as light. I was thinking John was a younger John here. And later in Revelation, the same thing happened to him again. He received honor and glory when the voice of God the Father thundered like the sound of... Niagara Falls multiplied a thousand times over. And if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you know how that sounds. And God thunders and rebukes Peter because 
he got all carried away being a Jew as he was with Moses and Elijah. And he said he includes Jesus here too. Well, well, we could build tabernacles for each one. And the father rebukes him and said, This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased in him. Hear him. I don't know about you. If I was Peter, I'd probably want to die. At the Father? Almighty God, the Most High God, would rebuke Him for that? Focus on my Son. You hear Him. Well, notice honor and glory is closely related. Glory is a quality that belongs only to God and shared by Christ, which is a summation of the glorious attributes. Honor is basically the recognition of someone who has attained a position through his labors and achievements. So there is a slight difference there, but Jesus received both because He's worthy of both. Glory and honor. Glory and honor. So Jesus was transfigured in the heavenly glory, honorably recognized by God the Father. The Father Himself recognized Him and said, This is my beloved Son, my one and only Son. I'm well pleased in Him. Hear Him. Notice Peter speaks about this excellent, majestic glory described uh, in Matthew 17.5. The glory cloud is called. I think this is the Shekinah glory. You can, you can do a study on this, but the cloud comes above the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God, and the voice from heaven comes out of that. The Father was right there. And then God speaks, this is my beloved son you know what that means basically he's saying and literally this one is jesus is the one who is in essence with me that's what the father is basically saying he's affirming the deity of christ that jesus is deity that jesus is the second person of the trinity in flesh no one like him no one like him This is my beloved Son, the Father says, in whom I'm well pleased. A statement from God the Father. All the way through the synoptic Gospels, except the addition here, listen to Him, listen to Him. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. My time's running out. God at various times and various ways spoken time past to, to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged, that means cleansed our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love that. Very quickly, third point describes the historical circumstances of the preview. Let me very quickly mention this. We heard this voice, he says, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. There's much more I could say here, but let me just just very quickly, interesting. If you notice in the text that Peter remembered the one thing, the voice. He remembered the voice of God. God the Father rebuking him. I, I don't know, if I was you, if I, I'm sorry, if I was Peter, I, I wouldn't forget that either, would you? He never forgot it. It's branded in his memory. Peter recalls God's voice. And those words were burned into his memory. We heard this voice that came from heaven. Such a voice. Such a voice. We heard it. And in Matthew 17, 6, And when the disciples heard this, they fell down on, their, on the ground and were terrified. They were like paralyzed, like dead men. And Peter was blabbering about... <laughs> The building of three tabernacles and the Father thunders. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. They heard this voice from heaven. Transformation was seen. The voice was heard. It became a holy place. They actually said when we were with Him on this holy mountain. Why was that mountain all of a sudden holy? Because the presence of God was on that mountain. Just as God when He met Moses is at Horeb in Exodus 3, 5... God said to Moses, remove your sandals as a token of reverence. You remove the sandals because you're on holy ground, because of the presence of God. God was there. Anytime God's there, it's holy. God was there. He was in the presence of a holy God. And He made that scrubby 
dungy old mountain holy. That's what God can do. Christ revealed the true glory on the mountain and will and His glory be revealed when He returns. Now, let me give some quick personal application. I hope I can go through this as fast as I can. i got to get this in. First A, by faith, not feelings, we accept and believe the testimony of trustworthy, qualified eyewitnesses. Folks, the eyewitnesses, they're trustworthy. Now, 1 John 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 that which was from the beginning, knows what John, he says the same thing, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was from the Father and which was manifested to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, notice, that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Notice what he's saying. We, these eyewitnesses, we saw it, we handled him, we seen him, we heard him, we handled the word of life. And you could be included. Must believe. B, personal application. Never depend on personal ideas or feelings over God's word. Never. Notice verse 19. We'll look at this, Lord willing, later on next Lord's Day. And so we had the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, made more sure. Even after a mountaintop experience like this, Peter says, you even have a sure word, a more sure word. The word of God. God's holy word, more certain than even a true mountaintop experience. By the way, experiences are subjective. The Word of God is objective. Experiences fade. Experiences can be interpreted in different ways. They go away. Different people. But the Word of God is one clear message and it lives and abides forever. Hebrews 12, 25-29 See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. As to the point. For if they did not escape, who refused Him who spoke on earth much more, shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven? Whose voice then shook the earth? But now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. It's going to happen. Now this, yet once more indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken, as things that are made, and that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. What cannot be shaken? He tells us. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably in reverence and godly fear. That's the way we serve God. In reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Folks, this is serious. My last personal application Don't rely on great experiences, even if it's a mountaintop experience. We depend wholly on the God's holy word. His inspired, infallible word that lives and abides forever. Peter could not share his personal experience with us, but he could share the record of that experience. It's in record. It's in the word of God. And that's permanent, folks. Now, in closing, let me share something with you that Brother Villain brought to my attention yesterday. And I said, Brother Willem, thank you so much. And he didn't know this, but I said, that fits perfect into the closing. And I'm trying to squeeze this in from C.H. Spurgeon. And he speaks about the verse from 1 Kings chapter 19. You can turn there if you like, but let me just quote it to you. 1 Kings chapter 19 beginning... I'd like to read verse 9 to 12. I don't have time, but let me, let me give verse, verse 12. God teaches them a great personal lesson. This is so important. You must get this. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire was still a still small voice, a delicate whispering voice. Now, you know the backdrop story. This is after a mountaintop experience. He's the prophet of fire. The, the false teachers of Baal are gone. The experience is there. God answers 
from heaven with fire. And then Jezebel threatens him to kill him and he runs like a scared rabbit. This prophet of fire runs because of a threat from a heathen queen? And then he just came from Mount Carmel, victorious, with God speaks with fire. And then God says, and he gives him this lesson, he goes to hide in the cave. And the Lord was not in the fire, and there was an earthquake and, and a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but he was in a still small voice. Folks, this is so significant. But listen to what Spurgeon says about this, and I close with this, I promise. Spurgeon says this, this is so good. God here teaches Elijah that although he does use the wind, the earthquake, and the fire as, when he pleases, there are not, they, these are not the most effective instruments. He does not do his mightiest works by them, but in another way, by a soft voice. A soft voice. Thus the Lord practically said to Elijah, gentler means must be tried with these rebellious people. My glory will be promoted among them by other methods you have had, had yet as used or then I have used by you as my servant. I have let them see that I am the Lord and master of terrible forces of nature. I have convinced them that I am the great God who can strike them as much as I, can, as I please, but I have not thereby won their hearts. Other methods must be used. And the soft voice must be tried. I love this. And then he says, To all of us who preach the Word and who try to teach it in any way, God seems to say, Do not trust in great displays of force, in tremendous demonstrations of power, but trust rather in the soft influences of the distilling dew of God's Spirit and the gentle rain of the Gospel. Preach the Word to the sons and daughters of Adam. A temptation assails all of us who preach to want to see some great thing. We fancy, I like him mentioning this, we fancy that if we could preach such a famous sermon as Jonathan Edwards delivered when he spoke sinners in the hands of an angry God, then we should have lived to some purpose. But, the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified never loses its power. The telling over and over again the old, old story of Jesus and His love never becomes a mere repetition with, uh, uh, even with a warm heart and loving spirit if we cry to our hearers, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There may be no excitement in our congregation. No sensation may be created by our preaching. But the Lord will be in it. He always has been in such preaching as that. And He always will be. Praise the name of the living God. Let's pray. Father, our great God, we thank You once again for this time we've had this morning in Your presence, Lord. Thank You for Your holy Word. And we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. And I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Lord, may this be true of us as well. Lord, give us grace to trust You more. All for Your honor and glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.